Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. And we're back with another episode of One, Two, Three, The, the Carmudgeon Show, part of the Haggerty Podcast Network. That is a Derek Tam hyphen Scott. That is a Jason Mary Camisa. Do you know that Enzo Ferrari's middle name is Maria? I did not know yes. that. I kind of want to legally change my middle name to Maria. <laughs> <laughs> and when asked why, just so I can be like, I'm naming naming myself my, after Naming Enzo. my middle self yeah, after. Yeah, it's Anselmo. It's Giuseppe Anselmo Maria. I think with, mm. I remember Anselmo for sure and Maria for sure. Mm. I love that. Uh, so I am Jason Giuseppe Anselmo Maria Camisa. Uh, and today That's quite the mouthful for your mother to yell at you. Get down here right this minute. She, she, <laughs> she certainly found long streams of expletives. <laughs> to use in lieu of your middle so, name. Um, I didn't have a middle name growing up. Really? Fun fact. Anyway, um, I gave myself one. It was not just a bunch of expletives. <laughs> no, my mother didn't really have to say much she would just mm-hmm. Jason! and that was that was it uh-huh. i was a very well-behaved child and i'm making up for it now um and speaking of making up for it now having nothing to do with making up for now we're going to talk about uh, making it up you are making making up it up transition. uh today we're going to talk about uh a, a weird strange aluminium buick v8 that has wound mm. up in many 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 cars and had a long and fruitful life even after it was discarded uh, unceremoniously by its creators you suck get out daddy issues <laughs> um, um and then uh how it went on to propel the uh an entire movement of vehicles which we now enjoy or resent depending on your perspective including the most beautiful ferrari daytona looking five-door hatchback full-size luxury car with a five-speed potentially transaxle, though probably not. <laughs> yeah, Daytona headlights and uh, a huge puddle of oil underneath all of them. And a pile of dust. Rusty Rust dust. Rust yeah, dust. Yeah. And um, the Range Rover. Yes, <laughs> in addition the, the to Range Rover, that. exactly. Uh, right. Well, oh. stay tuned. Uh, put on your crash helmet. And uh, Oh, yeah. Speaking of crash, we started this episode with a shoulder. This was supposed to be the shoulder episode. Oh, yes. Yeah, we the talked don't about drive it. on the shoulder Please episode. do not pass me going 160 miles an hour on the shoulder within three inches of my side of my car. That's all I ask. That's a big ask, but I'll do my best. Thank you. Can I first start out this episode by saying you're a hypocrite, Derek Tam hyphen Scott? Yes. Okay. Can I then continue by saying I'm a hypocrite, Jason? Yes. Mary Adam Sandler discount Camisa. Um, I don't like being a hypocrite, but I had something happen and I'm sort of upset about because I'm conflicted about what to do. I was driving along, minding my business. <laughs> and, it I, and, and it stopped. And it stopped. I occasionally drive like a reasonable human being. And this one evening I was headed uh, to a meeting uh, with somebody who used to work at Tesla to interview him about the Roadster for the forthcoming Revelations episode that we did on Tesla Roadster. And I wasn't going to be able to make it there and back 
uh, in the e-golf because it was too far and I have grippy tires that killed all my range. So I was in the right lane on the freeway doing, I think cruise was set at 65, but I was slowing slightly down because I was stuck behind. It's got radar cruise. And so I was doing 62-ish in the right lane of this bridge, minding my own business. And before I got on the bridge, I saw a Mustang um, parked on the side of the, the road. And I drove by and I noticed it because he had flashers on. And I first stopped on the shoulder. Stopped on the shoulder. And for a split second, I thought, do I what need to help the guy? GT350, I think. Um, I'm pretty sure it's 350. Um, and uh, well, hold on. You can watch the video now. Okay. So white, blue stripes. Um, I noticed it. If he would have been out of the car with the hood up, or, you know, I might have been tempted to stop and check on him, whatever. But that was right before you, we get on the bridge. And the bridge is two lanes and a, a shoulder on the right. And that's it's a breakdown lane. And at different times of day, for traffic purposes, they can, they can open that as a third lane of traffic. Speed limit on the bridge is 50. Um, but I'm just kind of, like I said, radar cruise, cruise going with the flow of traffic because I need to be able to make it home in case the... Uh, lovely network of Electrify America chargers, uh, which was broken, so I went to an EVgo that the did work. The repentance network. Yes. Uh, exactly. The Dieselgate um, repentance network. And so I'm minding my business, and I am hugging the right shoulder, as it turns out, because I have a dash cam, um, and I'm hu hugging the right sort of solid line, and I hear, I'm like, what is that sound? It was this distant roar, and before I could even look up in the mirror, I got shoved to the side, to the left, as this Mustang flew by me. And when I mean shoved, I mean like it wasn't a, you're going past a semi. a semi and you feel a little nudge. Um, it was a violent shove to the side. And this guy fucking flew by me. I estimated visually 160 miles an hour, flat out. <laughs> Gone. Um, you described that shove when we're describing it as a TGV. Yeah, it's like if you're in a high-speed train and the two of them pass each other and each one's going 200 miles an hour, it's a 400-mile-an-hour clo close speed and there's, you know, I don't know, a couple feet between the trains. Mm -hmm. And so there's like this sort of like, it sounds like a crack, yeah. basically. It's a pressure wave, right? Yes, and, it's a shock wave. You're, it's, it's a, a shock genuine wave. shock and wave. your ears will pop if, you know... If, if you're outside, certainly. Well, your head might pop if you're outside. But yeah, um, and so I have video of the pass. Okay, so watching that back, I it's horrifying, right? It's I mean, my holy shit's kind of funny. Um, holy shit! Holy shit! But you can count the how how quickly how many frames it takes to go from one line to the next dotted line, and I, my intuition was he flew by me going a hundred miles an hour quicker than uh, than I thought, and it seems to bear that. Than you were. Than I was. Yeah. And yeah. Then, so if you're going sixty, he was going nominally one hundred and sixty miles an hour. And so I recorded it. I mean, it's recorded on the dash cam. I went and pulled the footage off and I'm like, what do I do? Like he, the worst, the scariest part to me is that I was hugging the line and he was over the line. So yeah, he's on the line. His, yeah, his tires, tires are, on the line. are on the line more on my side than his side. Um, and if he would hit me, no question, everyone's dead. I mean, you know, at 100 mile an hour closing speed, he would have spun me up and over, potentially off the side of the bridge. You just, at those speeds, you just don't know what the fuck is going to happen. And I have a, I have dissonance about this because I drive like a complete asshole often, but I don't do that shit. It's by the standards. I mean, the question is, is it, is it dangerous or not? In this situation, I think it was dangerous. 
So, I mean, I've definitely traveled extra legal speeds, but in a way that I don't feel is dangerous. Like, I will be in a lane, and I will be in a situation where there's no vehicles around at all. Like, the times that I have gone that kind of... I mean, I've, the times that I've gone fast... On an autobahn. In countries. In Mexico. Um, it's always when there's, like, not only no one in my lane, but no one anywhere. It's always, like, early in the morning, or when you catch a light at the base of a highway, then the highway starts and the light is, you know, red and you're at the front of the line. Those are the mm -hmm. situations where I go those kinds of speeds, you know, or if you're in the middle of nowhere. But certainly not on a shoulder, and yeah. certainly not when there's cars tons around, of cars around uh, with that kind of speed differential tons of cars around and i had just been behind stuck behind an i3 so i'm trying to preserve range and so what you don't see the videos before is i was on this i3's ass and i think she was going about 38 or 40 and the left lane was moving at probably 70 and i didn't want to be that dick that pulled out in front of everyone and slowed them down and for a brief moment because that lane is occasionally a lane a traffic lane a traffic lane people do kind of fly by people on the right hand side now occasionally i've seen it and i was so tempted to just be like oh fuck this shit let me go around her but instead i waited until an opportunity went around on the left and got over and not 10 15 seconds later is when this happened so what went through my mind is i could have very easily made a lane change into his path and because it's not a it's not a lane of travel. I don't think I would have done the conscientious double look, look, look again, you know, which you do on an Blind Autobahn. Spot and mirror. Yeah, when you do on the left lane, you know, when you're, when you're Autobahn, you're pulling in traffic, you always look and then you look a couple, like a half second later because what was dots could be two big headlights and then everyone dies. Um, but I, I'm sure there have been times where I've gone flown by, by someone. Yeah, but at, not with a hundred mile an hour speed difference. I don't know, never. And and also, you know, the sound is is you know, I'm sure I've startled people, right? And that yes. you see them occasionally. They'll do a little bit wiggle, or you know, when you're doing 75 and they're doing 55 or something like that. But this was fucking horrifying. And I just really wrestled with: Do I send that video to the California Highway Patrol and say, "Hey, listen, if you guys need to need evidence on this guy for anything else, you might want to see this video because it's horrifying." Like he really could have killed 15 people. Like if circumstances gone wrong, or is that just inciting karma to have somebody upload a video of me passing someone on a shoulder, which is certainly not out of the realm of possibilities on a bad day. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not doing it that way, but I have definitely passed over a double yellow line, for example, like 35 in a 55 zone. You don't want to move over California. We've discussed this at length, but California yeah, it's often very doesn't stingy have with providing passing, even when there are places that are safe yeah. in the most and the onus is on the slower car they are required by law to pull over if there are five or more cars behind and them guess what immediately and guess what they never do so there are times where you're just like okay i could be sitting here doing 25 30 miles an hour under the speed limit for the next rest of my life or i could just wait until it's visually safe enough and pass um and so i don't really want to send the video in and we started talking about this over lunch we just had lunch so we'll both be asleep in 15 minutes as per usual 15 <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah i don't know what to do about this um i mean i'm getting old well uh well i mean there are things that are objectively dangerous and there are things that are my uh, objectivity is so subjective <laughs> look the art of driving is dangerous breathing is dangerous because the the only thing guaranteed to happen if you breathe is that you will one day stop hmm. so therefore breathing is 100 percent correlated with not breathing and dying 
Okay. So you can make any argument that anything's dangerous. Walking out of your front door is dangerous. Walking in a field is dangerous. You get struck by lightning and broad sunlight. You just never know. But that was just fucking dumb. Yes. I mean, I think it, no matter where you draw the line of what is dangerous versus not, I don't think there's anyone who would say that wasn't dangerous. No. Probably even the driver. I mean, They probably got jollies out of it. I bet the driver got a thrill out of it. I don't know. I mean, probably. He was probably stuck, stopped on the side of the road getting his camera set up or like, you know, or maybe a, a draggy or something and just wanted to see what his VMAX personal on his car is. Or pe- personal record for crop from right. point to point or but something But don't like do it. It's 7 o'clock. It's sort of on the tail end of rush hour on a busy packed bridge on the fucking shoulder. Yeah. The right shoulder. Left shoulder would be bad enough. Yeah. But, I mean, right shoulder, that's where like if I have a... You know, sometimes I'm driving old cars and sometimes they fail to proceed. Um, that's where they, they fail. That's where you go. You slowly just kind of pull over to the right. You're not expecting somebody coming 160 miles an or, hour. Or heaven forbid you've pulled over there in the cars. I mean, my mom's aunt and uncle were killed from a drunk driver hitting their uh, W-115 when it broke down and they were standing behind the car and they got struck and that's how they died. Oh, God. On the side of the shoulder there. Oh, so, if, like, imagine if you'd come over, because it's quite undulating, yeah. that surface. If you'd come over the crest... And there's a car just uh, and stopped. there's just a stopped disabled right. car in the shoulder because it's a shoulder. Yeah. Anyway, bet, I think no matter how you define it, that was dangerous activity. Yeah. I bet his mirror was less than five inches from mine. I mean, if you both are like kind of in the general vicinity of the line, yeah, then yeah, it was fu- it was a violent shove to the side too. Um, <laughs> you know. Anyway, um, so there's my dissonance for the day. I'm like, do I send this? I'm not going to send it in. It's just not worth it. Um, I'll put it out, you know, I'll, don't, I'll would, someone would argue you have a civic duty to send it in. Well, I've just done that duty by putting it here on the Carmudgeon show and somebody else can civic duty it all the way to the sheriff's to department, the, to, to the, <laughs> across the line. Control. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Here's their hotline. Here's the license this? plate number. Listen, what are they going to do with this information? Give him a ticket. I mean, that's the no, joke. they can't give you a ticket on that basis. I don't think. Can you? Can I don't they? know. That's the point. It's like, what are they going to do with it? Okay. Maybe they put it on his record and, or maybe the owner of that, maybe the car was stolen. You know, and I could have helped retrieve it, but I don't, I don't know. Well, to confirm the license plate was? <laughs> I think it said way more. Way W-A-Y more. space M-O-R. Wow. Um, and that if was, I remember your, noticing it. If you're missing your Shelby, it's yeah. uh, getting exercised. <laughs> <laughs> that is for sure. I mean, God, the fucking, the balls to brain ratio on that, that move was off the charts. Tremendous. Yeah. Um, but that is not why we're here. We're here on the Carmudgeon Show to complain about old stuff today yes and i have um done some research lately on a forthcoming bts episode and uh range rover classic Ooh! and i learned a lot about land rovers and range rovers and i read almost the majority of a book about the rover v8 which is you're gonna lend me that book yeah, do you need it for some... I mean, what car... So let's begin with the list of cars that use that engine, and then you can decide whether you ever want to do a revelations about any of them. I do. Uh, Rover 3500 used it. The P6, the Rover P5 used that engine. The Land Rover Defender and Pre-Defender. Discovery Range Rover, Discovery 2. Uh, what else? Uh, MG RV8, MGB GTV8. A bunch of TVRs, Morgan Plus 8, uh, Rover SD1. Uh, ah, yes, you have had such a soft spot for those cars. <laughs> um, well, this is where we're going to have to end this episode of Car Motion, So I well, need a minute. <laughs> um, All yes. right, and we're back. Okay, and we're back. <laughs> 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 Woo! <laughs> a cigarette. Um, <laughs> okay. 
So this was a bu- originally you Buick. forgot to mention all the Buick Buicks engine. that it wound up in. Yeah, so it was a bop engine. Buick. Bring your own. Oh, sorry. Buick. Bring your own. Oldsmobile Peanut Pontiac. butter? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but it was designed by Buick, uh, and it appeared in 1960, and it was used in the Buick Special and the Skylark. The the, the turbocharged version was the first turbocharged production engine ever, the, the Jetfire. That was the Jetfire. Uh, well, and, it's from Detroit, so um, it wasn't called the Jetfire. Oh, it was called the jet fire. Oh, of course, yes. Oh, God, there's a jet fire in that economy car. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, actually, it was something of an economy car move, actually, now that you mention it. Well, Shit. so it's a three and a half liter engine, which is tiny, 215 cubic inches, very tiny by American car standards Absolutely. in the 60s. And yeah. so this, they developed a new V8 for uh, a new small, small car. Small car. Meaning they're going to compete with the Cor- Corvair. <laughs> Uh, Is and that why that was developed? Well, the engine was developed yeah. for GM's response to, or to non Chevy's Chevy's response, but sor- yeah. sort of a small carring of America that was occurring in the early '60s. Wow! And so they're like, you know, that you could get a four cylinder in some of those cars, and probably an inline six too. But for the top line small cars, they wanted a compact V8, uh, and they wanted it to be uh, light, and so it's made out of aluminum. Which is let's you'll know more about this than I will because I. Didn't know we were doing this episode until I arrived. Um, therefore, we've done how much research? None. You've done it all. Um, uh, but only out there, of convenience. <laughs> were there any other aluminum blocked? Nope. This was the first. I believe so. I I'm believe not 100% so sure, but I'm almost sir, sure. I mean, think about this now. Volkswagen still does iron block yeah. engines. Yeah. Um, I th- so for GM to yeah, do aluminum. aluminum. In 1960, Ferrari was barely doing aluminum in 1960. Yeah. Ferrari barely yeah. existed in 1960. Correct. All of that is true. And so, uh, and then it was used also in the Pontiac Tempest, which is a we've talked about previously on a very vintage Carmudgeon episode about the transaxle. Yeah. Because that car has the transmission in the back. You know what also is a transaxle? The Rover SD1? Yes. No. I don't think so. I don't believe. I so. don't care to have you fact check me. It does have inboard discs, so I assume it's a transaxle. I don't think so. I don't. I don't think it has a transaxle. Can you have inboard discs without a transaxle? Who does that? Yeah, Jaguar did it on the XJS Shit. and the E-Type. Ignore that. <laughs> um, so Pontiac, yeah. So Buick Oldsmobile Pontiac used it. It was always two hundred and fifteen cubic inches, three and a half liters. It was aluminum. They had some in-service issues uh, with those engines. Oil leaking early, right? Um, they had so. It was aluminum, and so you had to use distilled water in the cooling system, and a lot of people were like, ah, just put some water in there, and it caused sludging up and like mm-hmm. probably some chemical reaction with the aluminum and the chemicals in the water. And so they would sludge up and plug cooling passages and radiators. Oh, that's inconvenient. Uh, and then they would get hot, and then uh, they would warp because they were made out of aluminum rather than just being like, oh, just put fresh water that's not hot in there, and then the problem solved, like yeah. a cast iron engine. And they were and they were aluminum block, aluminum head. Yes, too, correct. correct. But Unlike, liners, say, I think, were steel, so you yeah. have differential expansion rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the engine was actually super light, three hundred and eighteen pounds. Wow. Yeah. That for a V eight. I mean, a admittedly a small one, but it doesn't matter. So. Yeah. And uh, they also had some in-service issues resulting from the fact that a lot of Americans weren't super conscientious about coolant level because mm. cast iron cars are pretty forgiving. Yeah. So anyway, they had some reliability issues mm. with those engines. And uh, eventually Buick, or I guess GM generally, figured out how to make lighter cast iron blocks by making doing thin wall casting. So there's just less material. Uh, and so the combination of the 
the high incidence of manufacturing flaws from aluminum not knowing how to make aluminum. And they had to junk a lot of blocks before building engines out of them because mm-hmm. they were having casting issues. So that issue made them expensive, and they were like, there's a cheaper way to get this kind of horsepower than, uh, out of a small V8. And that's what they did. So the engine went out of production in 1963. and Really? So it was only, six, it was 60, only three years? Yeah, summer of 60 is when it launched, and wow. they were done in mid-63. Wow. Uh, and... Then around, let's see, around the same time, uh, Rover, which had been selling cars in the United States, I didn't know this till, since the early 50s. Um, they were, slash yeah. they did, slash yeah. they, huh? They left, they left the U.S. market in 71, actually. Wow. So well, then I guess they came back for Rover SD1s. They came down for SD1s. Went through a, a Leyland we will, tie-up. We'll talk about that. I guess. Uh, and so um, Rover's U.S. head was like, we got to sell more cars here and they, we need more powerful cars to do that. And like as a, a nice American V8 would really help our products here. Mm-hmm. And so Rover headquarters in England was like, great, find one. And he was like, erm. <laughs> and so he was wandering around looking for V8s, but everybody's like, yeah, we're using this right now. You can't have yeah, it. No, thanks. Yeah. Uh, and then he was at Mercury Marine. So here we are talking about Mercury Back Marine. Back to the C4 Corvette. Another, yeah, another episode of discussing Mercury Marine. But they, he was at Mercury Marine because Rover ha- was doing two things with Mercury Marine. One was Rover did a lot. In, during World War II, Rover made airplane engines, and they built jet engines, the early, early jet engines. And Imagine how reliable they were. Well, Won't yeah, you? so they didn't function too well, so they handed it over to Rolls-Royce, who knew a thing about making airplane engines, and yeah. Rolls-Royce finished it off. But anyway, Rover had been experimenting with jet-powered cars since hmm. 1949, uh, and so they were working with Mercury Marine to put them in fishing trawlers, I learned. Wow. Yeah, jet-powered okay. fishing trawler. Okay. And they were also doing, at the other end of the spectrum, they were using Land Rover diesel engines for marine conversions as well. That makes more sense. Yeah, so they, he was hanging out at, at Rover okay. Marine, er, at, at Rover Mercury Marine, at Mercury <laughs> Marine, uh, and he saw a Buick Skylark engine just sitting there, and he was like, hey, what's this thing? And they're like, I don't know, some old piece of junk that's aluminum V8 thing. And he was like, uh-huh. And so they like bought a bunch of them and sent them to Rover. Well, they took some measurements, and they're like, oh shit, this fits in every Rover product that we make. And the top-of-the-line Rover uh, product at the time uh, was the P5, and it had a 3-liter cast-iron inline-six, which weighed 200 pounds more than the Rover V8. Holy shit, wow. Yeah. Uh, and they, were all, they also had another smaller car called the P6, and it had a four-cylinder engine, and they were like, man, this thing needs more power. And so they were working on an inline-five for that because the inline-six that they already had wouldn't fit. Get out. Yeah. So they had Imagine an, how it, terrible that would have been. I mean, yeah. great. That would have been, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So they were like, oh, this aluminum V8 fits in both of those cars, mm-hmm. and it also would fit in a Land Rover. Hmm. Uh, and so... They initially Rover was like, you, it's foreign. It's not just outside of Rover, it's outside of England altogether. It's from the colonies. Yes. I can't have that. Uh, and by the and way, so, it was pushrod also. Yes. And this is, you know, not hydraulic ta- tappets. But, you know, really? to be fair, uh, everything was, everything was you know. But the thing is, they, they did oh, also, go. Also, uh, huge bore, short stroke. Yes. Which is unusual for an American was, engine. Was something that allowed them to constantly expand its Correctly. displacement, which we'll get to in a second. By stroking By and stroking, boring. They were able to bore it more. Yes. Um, I, yeah, I guess if you have cast in uh, steel liners. Mm-hmm. But that, 
it's funny that you'd go as high tech as possible to to do to use aluminum in the block, which probably costs them millions of dollars to engineer mm-hmm. and, and you know a ton of money for the extra car, and then not do overhead cam mm-hmm. at least one yeah per bank. Um, yeah. So yeah, push rod. That's why. I was, but that's the beauty of the LS at this point. Is why yes. it fits everywhere. They're tiny. Yes, push rod beats are very little. Okay. Uh, so Rover, you know, initially he brought it over and he was all excited. He said, "Look what I found, guys!" And they're all like, "Fuck off!" That thing's foreign. Yeah. And eventually, like. I think he, somebody put one into a Rover P6 mm-hmm. and gave it to someone and he, uh, someone important, and he drove it. And he was like, "Ooh, this is rather good, isn't it?" Uh, and so then they spicy. they spent some time. Uh, they spent a lot of effort actually roverizing it, and this I didn't know about. So roverizing means like fixing it, <laughs> basically well, by making it making worse. it. Well, no, these. I mean, I'm kidding. The core engines were actually quite good. So what? Hold on. What year was this? So they signed an agreement to license the design from GM in 1965, January of 65. That all happened really quickly. Yeah, it was like second half of 63 wow. is when he found one at Mercury Marine. Mm-hmm. And then I guess they put one into a P6 probably the, the following year mm-hmm. sometime. And then they got an agreement with GM who wasn't going to do anything with it. Although GM did do something with it. 3,800. Get out. Yes. They made an iron block version with two fewer cylinders, and that formed the basis of the Buick V6. That, that existed until 2041? Yes. yes. Are you serious? Yes. That is, wow. Yeah. Which was a 90 degree V6, wasn't it? Yeah. That would explain it. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. That en- This might be one of the longest lasting engines ever if you think about well, it. well the when did the 3800 series 2 stop 2006 maybe i don't know was that the end i think so of that original this design? is sort I mean, of we're now wandering a little farther i mean it's kind of like saying the small block is still the same small block no it yes wasn't, right yes. ls was a complete lt was a complete clean sheet whatever lt um, is the engine that f- functionally replaced yeah, but, the buick engine in a lot of places the 350 right um so okay, this is wild I didn't yeah that. and okay. then rover used it the last rover product to use it is probably the discovery 2 4.6 which ran until model year 03 yeah so We're that's a that's long a long, long run. run 40 um, years so yeah they put one in they put a buick one they just mm-hmm. had a buick they created actually the one that mercury marine they created up and mm-hmm. sent it to england and mm-hmm. put it in a rover and then gave it to some executive to drive back from a board meeting and he's like oh and so then they roverized it and that yeah. meant uh they had to throw out the um, the i think it was a rochester carburetor because mm-hmm. when they did any bit of cornering in it it would turn <laughs> off <laughs> from fuel starvation yeah. Uh, they improved the bearings and the water pump and mm. ceiling because they were going to be running them at high speeds on fast motorways. Because I think Britain at this point probably didn't have speed limits on the motorways yet. Wow. And so the engines would be running at, at fast speeds. They were also like, why is this, why are the, I think it was rockers maybe were chrome plated. And they were like, is this necessary? And we can't find someone to do this in England if we're going to make these things. And then they eventually discovered that the GM's chrome plating plant was sitting there doing nothing so that can you chrome plate the Are you the, the, the rockers on this thing? not the whole rocker just the surface of the rocker where it touches the end of the valves um but yes anyway okay. so the chromium plating plant in gs so they were like i guess we don't need to chrome plate this part which is good because we can't find anyone in england to do it we're making these motors uh so i think they changed the yeah bearings a whole bunch of internal changes to the engine uh in order to make it suitable to rubber use they also uh did 
uh, all the ancillaries, they replaced with British ancillaries, mm. so distributors, alternators, carburetors. Um, Lucas had to design a new distributor for it because mm. there was no one in England making V8s, almost no one. Uh, Rolls-Royce and Bentley were making V8s. There might have been one other. Aston. Yes, uh, Aston was not yet. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, Daimler. Daimler had two V8s. They had a 2.5 liter and a 4.5 liter. A 2.5 liter V8? Yes. Daimler had a 2.5 liter V8, and they used it in two different cars. Not at the same time. <laughs> no. They, <laughs> yes. This engine, we only have we have two cars, but only one engine, so you have to change it <laughs> if you'd like to drive the weekend car. Yes. Uh, no, one of them was the SP250 Dart, which was a fiberglass-bodied sports car, which is apparently a shitbox, but I've never driven one. It's kind of goofy of looking. Okay. Uh, and the other one was the, uh, I think they just called it the 250 or the V8, which was um, a Jaguar Mark II with a two and a half liter V8, Edward Turner designed V8. Wow. And then they had this big ugly limousine thing called the Majestic Major, which had a four and a half liter in it. So there were only hmm. two companies making right. V8s and both very high end, Rolls-Royce Bentley and Daimler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Lucas had to design a new distributor for the V8 because wow. there was nothing existing that they could pull off the shelf for that. Yeah. Uh, cool. And then it uh, made the Range Rover possible. Um, and this, uh, and then they put it in the Land Rover in the 70s, and then they put it in two Rover cars. The Triumph TR8 used it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... Uh, what else did I learn around this? I can't, I still can't wrap my head around what an MGB GT would be like with that car, with that engine. In it. They did GT, no, GT was just four cylinder, but MGB. No, GT only. GT the V8 only. was okay. only available in the GT. It was, only it was not one. available in the convertible. Like that, okay, it's not a hugely high horsepower engine, but it was 200 horsepower on top of Sort of uh, in the original three and a half in the Vite- Vitesse uh, SD1s it was but in mm. initial trim they were more like 130 to 150 horsepower uh, in the MG I think it was 130 horsepower because of the hood line they had to move the intake mm-hmm. around and so it lost a little bit of power or maybe it was also exhaust fitting it in the right. In the well, one of the four cylinders probably weighed what eight, eight, ninety. Yeah, nine something like that. And then you would also up. get it with a three liter inline six, which was heavier. The MGC. That's so crazy. Uh, from the Austin Healey Mark III three thousand. Well, any of the Austin Healey three thousands. Uh, so yes, the I dr- I've driven actually an MGB GT V eight. It's kind of good actually. I mean, the regular MGB is amazing, right? The four cylinder is not the highest mm, part of it. Come on, it's just an old British long stroke. You know, oh no no no! The motor is not the motor is not fun at all. I've always wanted an MGB GT. First of all, it's a two door wagon. Yes, it's dorky looking. Yeah, it checks all the boxes, right? Yeah. And it's fun. Steering is rather vague, but still talkative. Yeah. Um, and but I just love them for for how they look, and I always thought yeah. like a Miata motor, mm-hmm. like. Even even like a one six or one eight from an NA. Yeah, but weighing three hundred and eighteen pounds and it being lighter than the six cylinder, which was also offered yeah. in that car, it's actually not even a piggy sort of choice to to do to yeah. put the to have the V eight MG. That would be fun. To have that noise. Yes. Because they do sound they do racy. Yes. They sound great. Um, Good V eight noises. American V eight noise. Oh, I left out a car that used the ro- the Rover V eight, also the Apollo. Uh, Apollo 3500 and 5000. So there was a five liter version in the 60s even actually. Really? That, that was being okay. made then. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so then that brings us to, you know, British Leyland now is responsible for all of this. And uh, Rover was developing a new big sedan at this time. But then they got folded into British Leyland and William Lyons's company, Jaguar, was also part of Leyland. And he's like, I don't think Rover should have, you know, 
a big sedan if Jaguar is already doing that. And so Rover's flagship sedan was cancelled. Um, and they said, shit, we need to come up with a new sedan product. And that was the uh, SD1. Is that how that happened? Okay. Yes. it was. There was supposed to be a bigger car. And then mm-hmm. they got r- quickly Jaguar, axed as right. a result of Jaguar's So it couldn't be request. a full cool sedan. And, well, and it shouldn't be so big and premium. And so they came up with a, a less big premium and more like really differentiated mm-hmm. from, you know, what, what would be the opposite of a Jaguar, Jaguar XJ would be the Rover SD1. Right. I have a very big, enormous, rusty soft spot for those cars. Uh, so I went to high school in Germany and uh, in the summer I'd come back and stay with my friend Alex and her parents. And uh, I know I've talked about her dad, John, uh, years ago because he did E30 M3. So growing up, they were the kind of like, I, went, I grew up in New York, pre, pre-15, I was in New York, and in a little town, and everyone knew everyone's parents, everyone knew what everyone drove, and Alex's dad had a 325, like, you know, base, an Eta engine, um, mm. E30, and Anne-Marie, her mom, who is, I've been looking for for years, so I sort of want to put like an APB out there, if anyone knows where Alex Cease is, <laughs> or Anne-Marie Cease is, let me know, um, I cannot find either one of them. But uh, Amory drove a SD1, and it was this cool. greenish gold. She was Belgian, uh-huh. um, so she spoke with a very strong French accent. She smoked cigarillo, like little cigars, cigarette-sized cigars, and always had the most enormous sunglasses on. Mm-hmm. And John, Everything you'd expect of a French woman. Oui. <laughs> Belgian, not French. Yes, um, yes, but from, from the yeah. French-speaking yeah. part of Belgium. Um, yes, and she called me baby boy, baby boy. And Alex used to get really pissed off because I was the son they never had because I was into cars. And here was the thing. John, total car nut, bought an E30 M3 when, and this must have been 1988, when they couldn't sell them and he got like $10,000 off a sticker on a new one or whatever. And he was a track rat. He did track days all the time and was an instructor um, and would go out and instruct like Ferrari club track days and at Bridgehampton and stuff and then just go drive himself. So Bridgehampton back when yeah. that was a thing. Yep. Wow. I went the first track day I ever went to as a kid was Bridgehampton with John, no Alex shit. and Emery. And we took the M3 and I remember taking Did you drive two cars. through New York city or take the ferry. Across? We lived in New York. So oh, yeah. in New York city, in New York city. Oh, um, so you went through the city we went, while well, we were, yeah, we must have gone through the city and then over. But I remember taking two cars, and I remember one of them was the M3, and the other one must have been the the 325i. Um, but he did track days in the SD1, and he would do track days in, the, yeah, <laughs> and in the 325, and then, of course, they both got replaced by the M3. Um, but uh, John passed away many really young, he cancer, and never smoked. He was... He was um, His wife did. Radiologist. She smoked cigars occasionally, but she was just kind of like whatever. But... In a small town when you know everyone, like my mom was kind of the speed demon. She had a Peugeot 505 STX after her Saab 900 Turbo. And so she was always about like speed and uh, and the other cool moms with other cool cars were all topped by Emery because she'd be sitting in there. I'll never forget this like image behind that car in the morning, you know, when when it's just humid enough that there's like vapors, condensate, condensate coming out of the exhaust. And I just remember sitting at a light in the, I think we're in the Peugeot, and the 3500s in front of us, and it's steaming out of both exhaust pipes. And it was just sitting there. This unbelievable, deep American V8 burble. Yes. And I remember saying to my mom, I'm like, I'm sorry. 
Amory's got the coolest car in town. And at this point, I didn't really know them. And she was like, what is that weird looking thing? And I'm like, it looks like a Ferrari Daytona, mom. Like, and she's like, it's horrible. And the light turned green and Amory, who was not light of lead foot, um, just did this like perfectly executed. And the Peugeot couldn't keep up with it. And my mom was like, what the fuck is that? And I'm like, your 2.8 liter V6 has got no, nothing on that three and a half liter V8. Yeah. It was fast. It sounded good. And when I would come back 10th, 11th and 12th grade in between summers, they would give me the SD1. So oh. that was my summer car in New York. Oh. Um, and oh. it was one of the first cars that I really drove like on my own as a 16 year old, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I just always thought it was so beautiful. They're really, really cool. It's a shame they were so poorly made. Yeah. I learned a fair bit about British Leyland and it's really sad what happened. But the car, you know, initially <laughs> critically acclaimed, but the quality issues in the car. It, it was a nightmare. For yeah. Them. John used to drive it to the train station because he worked in Manhattan. And so he took a train in. And he's, it was always like, it was, he, I remember him laughing and saying it was always a surprise what he was going to come back to. And the one day, it was every time he was walking towards the car and he sees it's unlocked. And every time he touched the door handle, it would lock. <laughs> and he was like, finally, he realized, like, he was like, I don't know if I'm grounding it. Like, he, again, doctor, not an engineer. Like, I don't know what the fuck. So I just jump up in the air and pull the handle as fast as I could. And eventually it would get the thing open. Like, I'd be able to get it before the power locks. So he, he had disabled the power locks. I mean, it was just constant electrical issues. Yeah. I um, think they were structurally very vulnerable, yeah. too. A lot of water leakage. Right. Yeah. There, Jamie Kipman from Automobile, when we worked together, bought one. I, I think it was a yellow automatic and if if it had been like a blue like that pale blue vitesse yeah vitesse was so vitesse was 200 and 220 horsepower i think i thought it was 190 but you know they came out with the late fuel injected ones that have velocity stacks inside of an intake plenum and uh yeah and they did a double uh they did a double intake too also oh cool so those are maybe they made it up that high but my the number in my head is 190 horsepower how much did the u.s cars have like oh, 170. So they, they did sell this SD1 in the US. And the crazy thing was he went in, I'm ho- probably fucking up the story, but when I was really young, they had two of them. They had the Red Rover and the Gold Rover. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Red Rover was a prototype that they used for validation, for engineering validation for the US. Mm-hmm. And he went in and bought both of them. So the, the red one was a 79, and it was the one of like two that were 1979s. I'm sure somebody in a Rover club knows better. And I think the gold one was an 80, or maybe it was 80 and 81. But either way, they sold the car, I think for just two years in the US, mm-hmm. did not sell. But it was a five-door hatchback that was almost a full-size car. It was yeah. big. Yeah, yeah. Um, not XJ size, which was I now we know why. I mean, I bet the interior was bigger than an XJ. I mean, that's not hard. Uh, and but like, how cool is that? That'd yeah. be like a five series GT. Yeah. Like in that, Rendered. it's a very large hatchback made to look like a Ferrari Daytona up front. Yeah. Yeah. There, uh, I, 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 I don't. I think the optimum viewing distance for an SD one is probably a computer screen across the world. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm so tempted. But I'm so. That's one of the cars that very much like the Carlton. Carlton, yeah. I don't have an emotional attachment to. It was just a, I was in love with it as a, yeah. as a kid. This one, I have such an emotional connection with that. If I drive one and it's terrible, I will be genuinely, like I'll have to lock myself in the house for a weekend and not talk to anyone. I will be very crushed. <laughs> if it's not good. It, 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 yeah, because it, it will be It doesn't have to be good. That's the thing though. It doesn't have to be good. That's not the mission of that car. Yeah, but I just, I can't. There's a there's a guy I know. She's saying you don't want to split it? Split I, one? <laughs> if you can get, get a Euro one, I'll do it. 
because the, the headlights were i actually like the u.s headlights i like the look of the car somewhat better with twin round headlights mm, interesting. Um, but the headlight buckets were were awkwardly integrated in the rest yes. of the car so i'd want a euro car and all the euro cars are british and they're mm, there's some continental the ones all right if you find of it especially if it's a vitesse because that had the yes. spoiler and a body kit yes, on it yes um I might go half season with oh you. Oh, God. What have we done? I mean, it's a 1.8 liter four-cylinder if we each own half. <clears throat> what could possibly go wrong? Yes, but only one uh, camshaft. Velour seats. Velour seats. <laughs> half a cam each. Um, his, you know, his car had velour, velour seat, the gold one. The, mm-hmm. the red one got wrecked before I started really hanging out with Alex and her parents. Mm-hmm. But um, they were, apparently John was going in for quite the passing maneuver. Um, oh, God. And it didn't work. And so he jinked onto the left-hand shoulder. Speaking of shoulder driving, this this is our shoulder episode. Uh, and the Crown Vic, the LTD that was coming towards them, also went onto the shoulder. And so mm-hmm. they had a full, perfect head-on at a lot of speed. Um, and Alex was in the back. I remember telling me this. She was in the middle seat and would put both seatbelts on cross her. Um, and she's lucky. She was very lucky to wow. survive that. But it was a big, apparently a very big crash. Um, but everyone walked away. Everyone was full. Well, everyone on the rover. I don't know about the people in the, <laughs> in the LTD. But um, so, yeah, then all of a sudden there was only the one um, gold rover. And, uh, you know, it was in New York, so I'm sure it's long since right into the ground or I would be tempted. Oh, I'd be looking for that car. Uh, uh, anyway. So, yes, that was the SD1. Such a cool car. Yeah. And then... And then it really just wound up continuing its life for the next 20, 30 years, 30-something years in Range Rovers. Yeah, Range Rovers used it always from the outset. It was kind of an important part of the Range Rover's original recipe because it was supposed mm. to be more premium than a Land Rover. Uh, and so it has coil-sprung suspension, which still gives you good off-road articulation, but you know more refined power plant thirsty uh and uh you know it was it, they put it in a land rover the first time for the first time in 1979 still aluminum right yes it was always aluminum throughout which is uh, and then yeah range rovers next two generations of range or the first two generations of mm-hmm. range rover used it the defender and the discovery so and, and then you know mg tvr Mar- marcos also used it oh really um yes huh. so it was just a, an absolute tour de force uh, for those, for basically any British application, yeah. and really tunable as well. Mm. And so they made three and a half, three point nine liter versions, the four point three liter versions. I learned that the four point two liter Range Rover is actually four point three liters. <gasps> Gasp! I know, in the um, style of the the Germans, actually the opposite. Uh, the opposite. The big one, the and biggest the four six. Four six was the f- biggest largest. Land Rover was four six, right. but TVR did make a five liter version of it, um, and that. You know, they optimistically quoted like at 340 horsepower, uh, wow. but it was probably more like 300 horsepower. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, the, but yeah, like I was saying before, the, the Range Rover was really made possible by My it. Uh, and the Range Rover generally is actually kind of an interesting piece of kit because we think of the concept that underpins the uh, u- everyday sport utility vehicle, basically. Uh, something that you would use for any purpose, but it was also a utility vehicle as being like, duh, now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But back then, you know, if Ooh. you were getting an SUV, it would be like a tractor, mm-hmm. effectively. Yeah. Uh, and so Land Rover's like, let's try and like create this thing that people could use every day, but also does Land Rover stuff. And uh, the demand was so high for these things that there was like a year plus waiting list and they were selling over MSRP uh, for the first few years. Yeah. And uh, Land Rover 
didn't have any money to expand their production or even update the Range Rover, which they were like, you know, British Leyland is such a clusterfuck that they were taking all the profits from Range Rovers and using them to subsidize all the bullshit that British Leyland was doing. So there's no money left over. Come on. They were murking, making sterling 827 SLIs. No, that, that's, that was the good era. That was after Honda got involved. Like the bad stuff is like the Morris Marina and the Austin Princess and Triumph TR7s and... Okay. Dolomites and all that. Shit. I was just trying to get to Sterling A twenty seven because yeah. that because the A twenty five and A twenty seven, for those who don't know, were uh, Acura Legends. So A twenty five is a two and a half liter. Eight, well, shittiest. I would say. Yes. I mean, they their interiors fell apart within hours of leaving the production line. But the A twenty seven SLI was a hatch, a five door hatch, made mm-hmm. styled very much in the vein of an SD one. Well, and the eight hundred series replaced the SD one. Yep. Yep. In 86 or whatever it was. Also sold in America as a Sterling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but known as the Rover 800. 800. Yeah. Uh, no one's in, ever seen that. And available the manual, but they were front-wheel drive. Yes, because um, it's a Honda design. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of Honda tie-up with British Leyland in this period. I didn't realize that. So you say Honda got involved, and I was like, wait a second. I thought they just partnered for the 800. No, uh, it started quite a few years before. I uh, This is an altogether separate topic that i don't remember where i learned this but there was a thing called a triumph acclaim and if i showed you a photo of a triumph acclaim you would say no yeah kind of it's a honda civic it's a honda civic sedan it's literally a honda civic sedan okay and so this was done in the early 80s and then i think the 200 series were were did maestro maybe also were honda tie-ups also Hmm. and this is a result of british leyland having run you know, Rover and everything else it was touching into the ground. Yeah. Uh, and so then they had to tie up with Honda, which made the cars better, which was not a high bar. Uh, I remember seeing Consumer Reports stuff back in 80, I think it was like an eight, 1987 or 88 survey where they showed that the Acura Legend had the highest dependability of any car in and there. The Sterling. Sterling. And the Sterling, which was mechanically identical, had the absolute worst dead, dead fucking last. And so that was the difference that a good factory could make, for example. Well, yes, and I imagine there was some stuff that they roverized. Well, they, in the, the interior, process, right? They sucked up. What they did was just glue a bunch of wood panels to a lot of shitty plastics and they would fall off. I mean, I remember Brilliant. the cars were li- three years old really? um, and they would be losing trim pieces and shit would fall off, mm-hmm. um, you know, seals, whatever. They were just terribly built cars that were really well engineered, but then mm-hmm. terribly put together. So they would go forever and ever, but they would be really shitty yeah. in that state of yeah, lasting exactly. forever and ever. Yeah pieces flying off into the scenery um so yeah let's see did we cover the full history i guess what i find interesting is that that v8 so it was the rover v8 was it is now widely known as a rover v8 even though it was was a buick Buick. design originally that's that this one when we look back the lineage of the the range rover which is the only sort of last remaining vestige of rover Mm. We have one V8 that was taken from America and sort of modified and continued on. Then you have a BMW V8 mm-hmm. for a while. And a Jaguar V8. And then a Jaguar, the AJ V8, which was that actually based on Ford Doratech architecture at all? Because the 12 I was. I believe so. I'm oh, the Aston 12 was. The, yes. The Aston 12. I don't know about the AJ V8. I believe it was. I believe uh, it should a, have been by itself. Uh, yeah, I believe right. it was a standalone thing. But now we're back to BMW motors. Are like, they? Yeah. The new the new Range Rover uses a BMW V8 again. Really? Yeah. I don't understand this because now they're not related. Like BMW yeah, bought yeah, BMW Rover. BMW yeah. 
bought Rover in 94 and right. sold uh, Land Rover to Ford in 2000. So for whatever reason, that AJ, AJ with, a, with a supercharger on it was 500 horsepower. Okay, superchargers are inefficient and that's hard to, you know, hard to get fuel economy credits for. But uh, yeah, the new, the new Land Rover is now, the uh, new Range Rover is a BMW V8. Huh. So they were just constantly borrowing things. The other thing that I learned that they borrowed, uh, the original Land Rover came out in 1948. Okay. And uh, they were making it because uh, the Rover car company had been making cars. And then in early post-war years, they were designing a new car and there wasn't much steel to go around. Uh, it was rationed. And basically you... Britain, in order to recover economically after the war, had this thing that they called export or die, which is, you know, dark sounding, which was Raw the goal. Yeah. Uh, and but, but basically the goal was to get foreign currency. And the only way to do that was to sell goods overseas. And mm -hmm. so there was this huge push to make things to export. Uh, and in order to get steel, which you needed to make cars, you had to have a proven track record of exporting products and generating foreign currency. And that was how you got around the sort of rationing or the government controlled distribution of steel. Hmm. So that Rover is looking for something that they can build and export so they can get steel to make cars. Uh, and Rover, you know, one of the, the, I think he was the chief engineer, had a military surplus Jeep from World War II that he had on his farm, and he's trundling around on this thing on his farm in Anglesey. Uh, and he said, you know what, guys? We should probably make something that does something like this because I don't think people need, you know, rovers were d dependable, respectable, nice cars for people who couldn't quite Ish. swing a Bentley right. yeah. uh, or a Lagonda but wanted a nice, respectable, well-engineered, high-quality car. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, early post-war, there's not... That's not really the vibe. It's kind of quite austere. So that's there's not much demand for that. So we need things to help rebuild England. Literally, is is a little truckish thing that is capable off road and can also you can hook farm implements up to it. Like it had a power takeoff, so you could drive like a whatever device you wanted to off of the power takeoff on the Land Rover. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, and so they said, for two or three years, we'll make this thing that is has an aluminum body, right? Because mm -hmm. so, it doesn't use steel. It's just the chassis steel, mm -hmm. but the body's aluminum. Uh, and we'll sell it to people so they can buy them to make stuff and we'll sell them overseas and, you know, we'll just make it for a couple of years. Came out in 1948. Production ended in 2016. Yeah, it's so crazy. 67 years. That's so uh, And it was all just like this thing that they were just like, ah, oh, shit, we got to yeah. keep, because they had an, a whole factory and a whole bunch of workers that they needed to keep busy because they'd made tank engines and airplanes during World War II. And so they're like, what do we do with all this people mm -hmm. and factory? We'll make these little things, these utility vehicles, yeah, as a stopgap. As a stopgap for two or three years until we can, uh, yeah. until we can start making cars. And here's again. the thing: is it might have been in production for forty-seven years, but the whole the concept of Land Rover, which evolved into Range Rover, is what fuels what eighty percent of cars on the road today. Exactly. Um, exactly. That also fueled by government regulations. So remember yes. that you know there anything that is a farm and so we have in God, I did a column on this forever ago. Oh, and this is true about the Land Rover. Yes. Right. Uh, when I was at Road and Track, I wrote a column on this, but there are two categories of vehicles. There are passenger vehicles and then there are non-passenger vehicles. Right. And SUVs are non-passenger vehicles by by definition. If you if they have, I think it's like five of eight different characteristics. One is approach, departure, and, and breakover angle. One Another one is a, uh, f a, a flat load floor. Um, mm -hmm. Another one is a third row of seating. 
um, and there's a ground clearance requirement and whatever, if you hit five of these eight different things, you are considered an off-road vehicle. And that was so that the car companies, right? Non-passenger vehicles. They were called, they were called off-road vehicles in in law. And that was so that we, the car industry, which was having increasing pressure on it to make fuel, fuel efficient vehicles would still be incentivized to make trucks that would help farmers because that Mm. was part of the American culture as well part of our society is that we need to have farmers who produce food and if we can't if we make all these blob-shaped automobiles that don't work and this is in the 1960s um we the car companies would stop making trucks so trucks as a as a class were considered non uh, non non-passenger cars and they were off-road vehicles were exempted from rollover crash fuel economy emissions all of these different standards Mm -hmm. so that the car companies would keep making farm implements and this is happening basically at the start of the clean air act right they were like how do we because like we need to make trucks but they're not going to fit into this category of clean air and emissions control and and something like a land rover or something like an f-150 was not a passenger car that was used to drive to work it was a farm tool yeah and what happened was the rules remained so lax for so long in that category vehicles that all the automakers realized hang on a second we can make these dangerous shit piles and that's a gross exaggeration but these cars that do not conform to crash regs and safety regs and fuel economy regs and all this other shit and sell them under the guise of an off-road vehicle that's Mm -hmm. legal for to to be driven on the road because it has to be because how would you get from one field to another right but they cost less to develop and make than these other more sophisticated cars but people are actually willing to pay more money for them and so then they're just printing cash because they're like you're getting more thing it's bigger and it's Mm -hmm. it's uh, i mean to this day to the fault it's the fault of the range rover in some sense because it was such an aspirational product absolutely uh, that that people wanted that and they realized early on that the people who were buying them were not using them always a lot of people weren't using i mean some people were using them to tow horse trailers or but, boats i mean this is a joke i haven't seen clarkson's farm but you know that's the sort of the amazon show but mm-hmm. you know that's oh, always the brits are in a tweed hat and they're like no i need a land rover to get across the, the fields and to transport my dog so i can shoot pheasants exactly <laughs> peasants or pheasants yes okay um but yeah that i mean that exists today that sort of image but really that all of the cars sold today as SUVs. In case you're wondering why the Outback treatment, the all-road, the Outback, whatever, raises the car up, gives it the ground clearance, ta-da! It's it's an off-road vehicle. Doesn't have to go f- past all the rollover stuff. You want to know mm-hmm. why a Rav Four comes with a with a back seat? Ooh, Give me a, a third, third row. row, three row. Suddenly that gets it across. It's got approach departure, ground eight point one inches of ground clearance, whatever it is, and ta-da! Now it's an SUV, not a passenger hmm. car. And so different targets for fuel economy, different crash. Now, most manufacturers will subject all of their SUVs to the same crash test standards, but the government doesn't enforce that. No, there's not. And they're not on-road vehicles. And so it takes independent agencies like the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety to crash test them. And now IIHS, you know, you'll see a five-star safety rating, whatever that's, that is an independent insurance institute um that's giving that out and all the manufacturers are designing their cars for iihs five stars not nitsa which is national highway traffic safety administration and certainly not the dot which is there are three levels of crash tests you have to pass in the u.s right yeah. one is dot then it's legal nitsa gives a that that's a 30 mile an hour straight into a barrier then nitsa gives a 35 mile an hour offset 30 god 40 percent offset um, or is it 4040, whatever it is. And then IAHS beats the shit out of the cars and actually separates the, you know, the good from the bad mm-hmm. by continuously evolving these cars and being tougher on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the trucks 
are all of the SUVs. Anything that's marked as an SUV is exempted from all of that legally. Mm-hmm. Um, so participation is voluntary. And this really does trace back to the idea that you could take you the, the, uh, an off-road vehicle like a Land Rover, which were, are genuinely terrible to drive, turn it into a Range Rover, which keeps 90% of its off-road ability, but then... Maybe more. Maybe more. And then adds in infinite multiplier of comfort and luxury and usability and now it becomes an everyday car that can do what that Land Rover does that created this then yes. Land Cruiser comes along that was another one yes there's another one that just but the Land Cruiser everywhere. originally was more jeepy right yeah. the I mean the deal with the Land Rover the Land Rover when it came out in 48 was like look it's got doors yeah which the Jeep didn't and yeah. a roof which yeah. the Jeep didn't and so even, they were like even Bronco more, 20 years yes. after that yeah Same Bronco thing. was 65 mm-hmm. uh and so that was the other thing that and not, both of these things were facilitated by things that happened in the United States that Rover discovered because Rover was doing a bunch of market research in the Mm -hmm. sixties. And they're like, in order to sell more cars, we need something that's more powerful. Uh, And also there seems to be like a lot of growing interest in these leisure four wheel drive Mm -hmm. vehicles, like the scout international and the Bronco and the Jeep Wagoneer. Maybe we should get in on that. Uh, And those two things came together and created the Range Rover. But that regulatory exemption that you were talking about applied also like in a much more austere way to the uh, Land Rover when it first came out because mm-hmm. it was considered a farm implement. Yeah. And so there was no purchase tax, I guess, on it at all in England, which is, you know, the Range Rover did have purchase tax because it was a more useful device. Right. But originally the Land Rovers didn't. And, you know, early post-war, I think that was quite helpful for a lot of people yeah. who wanted to have, you know, a tractor they could drive on the road as well, yeah. which was basically where the Land Rover started. Oh, and you drive one of those. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. what it feels I mean, even when you drive an old <laughs> Range Rover, you're like, wow, this is not terribly civilized. I mean, it does have wind-up windows, and it is a lot softer mm. sprung because it has coil springs. And, you know. I don't think I've ever driven a really early one. I mean, Early Range Rovers? Range, yeah. Yeah. I mean, eight, it's early a truck. 80s. It's a truck. 80s, yeah. But, the, I mean, the I drove... Defender, early Defender, and wow. Yes, it's like a tractor. I fifty horse, so fifty two horsepower tractors. Yeah, it was some. It was a diesel four cylinder that would vibrate mm. your teeth out. Yeah, um, and yeah. Ba- genuinely barely moved. I yeah. mean, it had to have been you know zero to sixty no. Yes, that's correct. Zero to sixty no, yeah. uh, but unstoppable. You know, at low speeds on weird terrains, yeah. and it uh, all throughout its existence all of the land rover products were the one thing that was coming out of the rover or leyland really that was actually halfway decent Hmm. and so for the first 10 years the range rover wasn't really changed uh, because they didn't have any development budget they added optional power steering that was it in the first 10 years they made almost no changes they did a facelift in 79 so nine years after it came out that got you um the letters on the front and back were made black and they changed the bumpers to black. Uh, mm. And I think they moved the side mirrors. Wow. Uh, but everyone wanted, everyone was like, I want a four-door version. I would like an automatic, mm. uh, you know, I'd like this and that. Oh, the other thing the Range Rover had was four-wheel disc brakes, which was kind of noteworthy yeah. in 1970. Um but yeah, they basically left it alone for the first nine years because British that's Leyland crazy. was so fucked. Yeah. And that's why in the 80s, you see them get suddenly quite a lot more nice, you mm-hmm. know. So because of they finally had the money to, 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 to develop that. it so so the next time you're doing a drift in your cayenne yeah uh, remember that it is you owe it all your cayenne owes all of its suv-ness to the land the rover really, and a buick v8 yes combined together mm-hmm. to create the range rover
which you know still exists but like you said the last thing that's left of the rover group Mm -hmm. because the rover group you know was a huge behemoth the most of the british car industry that wasn't jaguar or rolls royce right was in there and it's all gone now yeah all of it gone and in Today, in, you know, in modern terms, I think if there are two brands that people love their cars, you know, more than anything else, if you ask owners, would you buy another one and how much do you adore this? I'm guessing top two spots are Porsche and Land Rover. Mm. Everyone who drives a Land Rover doesn't care if it breaks, doesn't care if it's right. less than reliable. They, they nail that mission. And that mission is let me look rugged, but be coddled. Yes. Um, and actually just the car to do just about everything yeah. as long as you don't have any significant sporting pretense or no, now that the sports being are as good as they yeah, are, right. they that's not true anymore. But certainly for the first mm-hmm. 30 years, and 40 for the, years. For the full-size Range Rover and, you know, and some of the other ones, they really don't have all that much sporting pretense. You can add yes. it in with power, ridiculous power, yes. but they're still softly sprung and they're not into handling. Yeah. Um, and they're authentically themselves. I would have a Defender in a second. I love those things. I've always had a soft spot for Land Rovers, despite their, you know, shortcomings. Yeah. But it's, I think it's something that people always react positively to, that the, that it possesses, which is authenticity. It's a, yeah, yeah. Uh, it oh, is the original. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the, certainly. I mean, the original on-road, I guess, luxury SUV. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it all started with a Buick V8. From that the they discarded after three discard, years because yeah. it was junk. Yeah, and the British were like, "We'll 40, have that." Forty years later, and we'll extract another yeah. half a half a century out of yeah, it. Fantastic. <laughs> L- leave it to the Brits. Um, yes. All right. Well, cool. thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Car Mudgeon Show or the Truck Mudgeon Show. We will be back in a week, probably. There might Perhaps. be a holiday coming up. There may be a holiday coming know. up. If there's you a holiday, might be in the old country. I might be in the old country. Who can say? Uh, we don't know. But if we would, we, we try for every week, and but we, and we make it except for holidays, or when you know force majeure. Yes. Is well, that? yeah. Force majeure, such as a nap. <laughs> yeah, I want one now. Go okay. Well, right. thank you for joining us. We'll see, see you week. next time.